Good to be with you. Uh, I'm excited to be able to uh, dive into Hebrews with you guys over the next uh, 14 weeks. Uh, Joel started us out last week introducing us to this incredible book, uh, both giving us some background, but also hitting on kind of the, the main idea being driven home in Hebrews, which is behind our, our title, this idea that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Hebrews. We're going to be uh, in chapter one and a little bit in chapter two this morning as well. And, and as you're opening up your Bibles, I want you to picture something with me for a moment. I want you to picture yourself, perhaps not in the too distant future, behind the wheel of a fully self-driving car. Fully self-driving car. It's got all the gadgets, everything it needs to be able to drive itself. And you've, you've spent time learning about the wonders of this car and, and maybe even telling your friends and family about how great this car is. You, you know that it can stop at every single red light, that it can steer through every single turn, brake at every obstruction, that it can change lanes on its own and accelerate and decelerate as needed and do everything else to get you safely to your destination. In fact, you may even know this, this car is actually a better driver than any other driver on the road. Now, I want you to picture for a moment being behind the wheel of that car, and all of a sudden, you come to a sharp curve in the road, or all of a sudden, there are brake lights and screeching tires right in front of you. What, what do you do in that moment? If you reach for the steering wheel and reach for the pedals, even though you confess with your mouth, this car is better what you actually reveal you believe in your heart in that moment is that you are a better driver than this car. We started last week emphasizing in this series how the message of Hebrews, which is really most likely a sermon that we have in written form, is seeking to drive home this one main point. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. In fact, in verse 4, we're going to come across for the first time a Greek word, kraton, which is translated in verse 4 as much superior, and yet shows up 12 other times in the book as better. Over and over again, the author is going to hold up something or someone, and then he's going to say, and let me tell you how Jesus is better. And yet it might surprise us with where he starts, because he starts with angels. I think, why, why start with angels? We don't seem to wrestle with this question of, is Jesus better than the angels? And yet it seems to be a question that the original hearers of this sermon would have wrestled with. That, that though they would have confessed with their mouth, Jesus is better. In reality, as things got difficult and rough, they they might have started to think, well, maybe we need to look to the angels and maybe they're actually better than Jesus. That though they would have said Jesus is our savior, they were tempted or prone to start to look to angels in such a way where they started to rely on them as their savior. And like I said, we, we don't tend to wrestle with this question today. Is Jesus better than the angels? Perhaps that's because we have a low view of angels and we tend to have a low view of spiritual things. And while we may not wrestle with that question, we wrestle with all sorts of other questions like, 
is Jesus better than money and lots of it? Is Jesus better than success and my career and making it in this life? Is Jesus better than my family and, and my friends who I hold to so dearly? Is, is Jesus better than romantic love and sexual fulfillment? Is Jesus better than fame and human approval and getting other people to praise me and notice me? Is, is Jesus really better than anything else in all this world? And while we might confess with our mouths Jesus is better, we're, we're constantly tempted to believe and live as though something else is actually better than Jesus. That while we may confess Jesus is our Savior, who gives us life and joy and peace, that we can actually be prone to look in all sorts of other ways for life and joy and peace. That, that while we confess Jesus is our Savior, who protects us and provides for us, that we're tempted to look in all sorts of other places, like relationships or money or a home or any other number of things for protection and security. That while we confess Jesus is the one we find our worth and identity in, we can start to look to all sorts of other things to try to build our own kind of worth and identity. Be it a career, a role as a mom or dad, our religious behavior, or, or any other number of things. And often these things that seek to supplant Jesus' place in our lives have been referred to as functional saviors. That though we confess Jesus is our Savior, we end up relying on something else to act as a Savior. Jerry Bridges has put it this way. He says, sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional Saviors can be any object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, security, and significance because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. And yet what we find in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 1 and 2, is that Jesus is better than any other Savior. What's so great about the preacher of Hebrews is he knows that we wrestle with this temptation or tendency to elevate something else above Jesus and start to trust and worship that instead. And so he responds in this way. He seeks to put those things in their rightful place, whether it be angels or any other functional savior, by helping us to see Jesus in his rightful place. He's a little bit like a tour guide who comes to someone who's fascinated with a little hill in Lancaster County and says, come with me and I'll show you the Rockies. He's like a chef who comes to someone who's been feasting on spam and says, let me feed you a bacon-wrapped pork tenderloin. He's like a parent who comes to a child who's been playing in a puddle and says, let me take you to the Atlantic Ocean. In chapters 1 and 2, he's seeking to remind us of how Jesus is a better Savior than anyone or anything else, so that we might continue to trust and rely in him and not look to other Saviors. So this morning, we're going to look at two questions. First, what makes Jesus better than any other Savior? What makes Jesus better than any other Savior? And to answer that question, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14 in chapter 1 to see four ways that Jesus is supremely better than the angels and any other Savior we might rely on. And then second, if Jesus is truly better, what impact should that have on our lives? 
If Jesus is really better, what impact should that have on our lives? And, and to answer that question, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where we come across the first of many warnings in the book of Hebrews. So let's pray together, first of all, and then read from Hebrews. We'll read Hebrews 1, 3 through 2, 4 together. Father, we come to you this morning believing that you are present here with us. We come confessing our need, our need to hear from you, our need to have your voice be what shapes our lives more than any other voice. God, we come confessing that on our own strength, we tend to drift away from Christ. And so we need your grace to continually fix our eyes back on Jesus. And one of the incredible things about this book you've given us in Hebrews, this message of Hebrews, is that it does just that. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would work to fix our eyes on Jesus again this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 1 will start in verse 3. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's a lot in there. We might first of all just ask, well, what is it that makes Jesus better than the angels and therefore better than any other savior as well? And I think we can see four things in verses four through 14, that Jesus has a better name, he has a better fame, a better claim, and a better reign. First of all, that he has a better name. The preacher tells us in verse four that Jesus is as much superior, better to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
The preacher is here speaking of what Jesus has received from the Father at his resurrection and ascension. And we can see that by referencing back to verse 3 that came right before verse 4, where it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. And yet we're told the name he's inherited is son. In verse 5, we, we see him quote two places in the Old Testament referring to Jesus as his son. But, but what does it mean that Jesus is given or has inherited the name of son at his resurrection and ascension? Hasn't Jesus always been God's son, the the second member of the Trinity? How can we speak of him as inheriting this name? This is where I, I think it can be helpful for us to think of name, both in terms of nature or essence and in terms of role. Jesus did not become the son of God through his resurrection and ascension. That's his nature. That's who he's always been for all eternity, the son of God. But in his resurrection and ascension, God revealed the role that he had always assigned for his son. In other words, he revealed the role that his son was meant to be the one true king, the savior of the entire world. The preacher is quoting two places in the Old Testament in verse 5 that are connected with the role of king. The first comes from Psalm 2, Psalm 2 verse 7, which is this song that likely would have been sung at the coronation of a new king in Israel. And then the second place comes from 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14, which is the Davidic covenant where God is promising David, there will be one of your offspring who will rule forever. And so it's in Jesus' resurrection and ascension that God declares to the whole universe, this is the one. This is the one. This is the one that every single king and deliverer in the Old Testament was pointing forward to. This is the one who's taken up the place as king of the world, savior of the universe. This is why Peter can say to the religious rulers who are threatening him in Acts 4, and their salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, we're being told Jesus is God's chosen and appointed savior for all people. Or in other words, Jesus is sufficient to save us. And when we start to look outside of Jesus to other things to kind of save us, provide for us, comfort us, help us, what we're really saying is Jesus isn't enough and we need something more. And yet the very fact that he sits on heaven's throne right now in this moment has been God's declaring He is enough. He is the savior of the world. Why would we ever go anywhere else? Whether to angels or anything else we might find in this world. We we can see second then that Jesus has a better fame. Stop and think with me for a moment. What usually happens in the Bible when an angel shows up on the scene? What usually happens in the Bible when an angel shows up on the scene? People drop down in fear and trembling, 
even often dropping to the floor and having their faces hit the floor before an angel. Like the, the Bible describes angels as often being bright and glorious and having these uh, incredible attributes. Like, like if, if an angel were to show up on stage right here this morning, which the Bible seems to say there, there are angels among us, God sends them out to serve those who will inherit salvation. And, and yet if we could actually see an angel for a moment, we would likely not, first of all, take out our phones and try to get a really nice picture of that angel. We would drop face down to the floor, stunned by that angel. Now, now with that as background, listen again to verse 6. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When Jesus ascended and took his place on the throne of heaven, these beings who are so amazing fell down on their faces and worshiped Jesus. That's what they continue to do even right now in part. Because we're told in Revelation that around the throne of heaven, angels continually worship Jesus as he sits on the throne. Do you catch what the author is saying here or the preacher saying here? He's saying, hey, do you know those angels that you are so impressed with? Do you know who they're really impressed with? Jesus. You know who they're worshiping? Jesus. The, the angels are literally starstruck by Jesus. They exist to worship and make much of him. And so to worship angels is to miss the very reason why they exist, which is to shine a spotlight on Christ and magnify him. L- later today, the Super Bowl is going to take place. I'm guessing you already knew that. It's probably not news to you. But it's going to take place at Allegiant Stadium, which is uh, outside of Las Vegas. And the stadium was built, uh, I think, 2020, four years ago. And it's a dome. And so what it relies on to light up the field inside is all this system of lights to shine down and magnify the field and the players on the field. And when the stadium was built, it actually won an award for its lighting system. And they gave him an award saying, you guys have really good lights, some of the best in the NFL. And yet if you or I were able to get a ticket to the Super Bowl today, and be in Allegiant Stadium, we would not, at least I hope we wouldn't, we would not spend most of our time staring up at the lights, thinking, wow, they're really good lights. Because if we did, we would miss the very reason why those lights exist, to shine down and magnify what's happening on the field. The lights are there to make much of the game. And we're being told the angels are there to make much of Christ. They exist to worship Jesus, and they exist to help us worship Jesus. Notice in verse 14, if you drop down there, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? God sends out his angels to serve those who believe in Jesus. How? By helping us to worship Jesus and make much of him. We might ask, well, what what does that have to do with all our other functional saviors we might turn to. Well, everything that is not Jesus exists for Jesus. Everything that is not Jesus exists for Jesus. In Colossians 1.16, we're told all things were created through him, Jesus, and 
for him. God intends everything that is not Jesus to shine a spotlight on him and magnify him for us. That means everything we might look to as a replacement for Jesus in this life is actually here to help us worship Jesus. You know that? Money is here to help us worship Jesus. Marriage is here to help us worship Jesus. Your career is here to help us worship Jesus. Our abilities, our education, everything is here to help us make much of Jesus. And they help us do that as we remember he's created all those things, he's given all those things to us, and they point back to him. And we get to third, Jesus has a better claim. In verses 10 through 12, the preacher is again quoting from the Psalms. By the way, do you notice as we read through uh, how highly the preacher of Hebrews regards the Bible? (laughs) Granted, we believe his book is inspired by God, and so he's speaking the very words of God, but when he wants to make the case, well, is Jesus better than the angels? What does he do? He opens up to the Old Testament, and he starts quoting scripture. Think about how highly he values God's word. It's going to shape all of his arguments. And he's specifically quoting from Psalm 102, 25 through 27, a place that speaks of God as the creator of the world who is separate and different than the creation. It says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away but you are the same and your years have no end. And he's applying this to Jesus and saying he's the creator of the world who is different and separate than the creation. He's saying of all the incredible things that angels might do, none of them, none of them can claim to have spoken this world into existence. In fact, they themselves are just creatures who've been created by Jesus, the creator. Why would you trust in a creature to be your savior when the creator himself has become your savior? This is the heart of idolatry in our lives, where we seek to look to a created thing to provide for us what only the creator can provide for us. That's why Paul in Romans 1 says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is, what is at the heart of our sin, that we reject God and we seek to replace him with something that he's actually created. This is what we're doing when we look to something other than Jesus to act as our savior, to give us life, joy, satisfaction, comfort, help, peace, whatever that thing is. And not only is it sinful, it's also foolish because those things can never satisfy us and never save us. We have in our house currently a one-year-old and he can't walk yet. All he can do is crawl. But when he's hungry or he needs something, he'll crawl across the floor and come over to my wife or I's feet, kind of grab at our feet and look up and try to get our attention. Because ultimately he knows he needs us to be able to feed him or give him what he needs. It would be really foolish if the next time my son got hungry, he decided to crawl over to our Beagle Sharpay dog and grab at her feet and try to get her attention. 
because she's a dog and she can't feed my son. In fact, the best she could do is say, here's some dog food and some dirty dog water that would never ultimately satisfy my son. He doesn't do that because he knows she's a dog. She can't take care of him. Yet how easy it is for us to go crawling to created things and act as though they can satisfy us and give us what we need rather than running to God over and over and over again in the midst of whatever we need. How quickly we go to something he's made, asking it to satisfy us, to fulfill us, to give us peace and life and joy. And yet we we don't have to look to created things because Hebrews is telling us the creator himself has become our savior. That the one who has made us for himself has come into this world to save us and give us himself. He can do what nothing else in all creation can do. He can forgive us of our sins. He can heal us of all that's broken and he can fully satisfy us with himself. And then we get to the the fourth thing that makes Jesus better than any other savior. Jesus has a better reign. Verses eight through nine and 13 refer to Jesus again as a king and specifically to his reign as king. Here the preacher is quoting from Psalm 45 and Psalm 110. And he's using these verses to tell us Jesus is the king who's truly worth submitting to and serving. He's the only king who's truly worth submitting to and serving and giving our lives to. See, whatever we look to as our savior is ultimately what we will end up serving. It's what will rule over our hearts and our lives in all sorts of different ways. So, So let's say for a moment that we look to money and all that it can provide to us more savings, more stuff, more vacations, more honor in other people's eyes, that we look to money as our savior that can provide all those things. Well, then we we will live in such a way where we seek to get more of money and what it offers to us. And money will end up ruling over our thoughts, it'll end up ruling over our affections, our loves, and it will end up ruling over our decisions, what we do and don't do in this life. And we can play that out with any any sort of functional savior that we might turn to and how it starts to rule over us. Yet the the preacher is telling us that only Jesus is the rightful king who should rule over us. He's he's the only king who rules in perfect righteousness. In, In other words, he's the only king that like as we submit to him and serve him, he won't enslave us and abuse us. He'll actually set us free. He's the only king who has all authority because he sits at God's right hand and rules over the entire universe. And so he's the only king with a type of power and wisdom to actually be able to help us in our time of need. He's the only king who will defeat and conquer all his enemies. If you are with this king, then he will defeat and conquer your enemies as well. And yet if we stand opposed to this king, he ultimately defeats and conquers us. I love the image of verse 13. Look back there for a moment where it says, God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Seems like kind of an odd image, right? I'm gonna make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's he saying there? Well, I think if, if you live in Lancaster County, you've maybe actually seen this type of image before because you've probably been inside the home of someone who is a hunter 
or you yourself are a hunter. And what do hunters have in their homes? They have mounts of different animals that they have defeated. And I don't know if hunters do this anymore. Growing up, I came across this. I don't know if you guys do this anymore. But sometimes if a hunter killed a bear, what would he do with the bear hide? That's the right term. He'd create a rug and put it on the floor somewhere. And that when you step on that rug, you're not essence saying, I have defeated and conquered this bear. That's the image of enemies being made into a footstool that Jesus stands on and says, I have defeated and conquered sin, Satan, and death. What, what other functional savior can do anything in the face of sin, Satan, and death, which are our greatest enemies, by the way? Can any amount of money forgive, forgive us of our sins and one day wipe sin out of this whole entire world? Can travel and entertainment overcome Satan and completely undo him? Can romantic love and sexual fulfillment conquer the grave and give us life forever? No, none of our functional saviors can. In fact, the best they can do is only distract us when we look to them as saviors and tell us, hey, don't worry about sin, Satan, and death. Focus on me. And yet sin, Satan, and death are our greatest enemies. And there's only one king who has defeated them and will utterly wipe them away, King Jesus. It's why we sing, all hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of heaven and earth. All hail King Jesus. All hail the savior of the world. Now, if Jesus really is better than any other savior, what impact should it have on our lives? We really believe that Jesus is better than any other savior. What, what impact should that have on our lives? It's, it's really important for us to see that believing and speaking of Jesus as better is not just like a fun debate we have. The, the, the book of Hebrews is not like an episode of first take where they're debating whether LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the better basketball player. Because in the end, whether you think LeBron or Michael Jordan's better has no consequence for our lives. And yet Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is right away telling us, the preacher saying, whether you believe Jesus is better and so trust him as your savior or not has massive consequences for our life. To truly believe Jesus is better and trust him as your savior is to find life both now and forever. And yet to oppose him or ignore him, or treat him as though he's no big deal, and who cares, is to ultimately face God's judgment. The preacher's getting right to the point. He's saying this is not just a fun debate we're having. He's saying knowing, trusting, and believing Christ as Savior is a matter of life and death for us. And so he tells us these two things in chapter 2, verse 1. First, don't drift from him. Don't drift from him. Michael Kruger says, here's something that we rarely want to admit. There's a part of each of us that tends to be drawn to things other than Jesus. Left to themselves, our hearts tend to drift away from Jesus. Drifting is as easy as simply starting to coast in our spiritual lives. What do I mean by that? It's as easy as starting to say, I don't really need to hear God's word and I don't really need to seek to obey his word. It's as easy as starting to say, I, I, I don't really need to pray to God. I, I just don't have time for that in my life. 
It's as easy as starting to say, I, I don't really need to, to gather with God's people on a regular basis. It's as easy as saying, I, I don't really need to continue to repent of my sin and trust Jesus to save me. We will inevitably drift from Jesus if we start to coast. And, and what's so dangerous about drifting is that it's often so slow and imperceptible. And yet if we continue in it, it ends up leading us often away from Christ to rely on some other functional savior. Drifting from Jesus is probably one of the easiest things that can happen in our lives. And in fact, if it weren't for God's promise to hold us fast, we would all inevitably drift away from Christ. And yet we should never treat God's promises as a thing for us to then coast and be apathetic. That's why Hebrews is going to have warnings over and over and over again that are meant to encourage us to keep pursuing Christ and not drift from him. Which then we get to the second thing, pay attention to him. This is how we avoid drifting from him and looking to lesser saviors. We pay attention to him and to his word or his voice to us. The preacher says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. It's, it's this idea of listening closely, making effort, exerting ourselves to listen to something. Perhaps you, you've been in a crowded room before, and you're trying to have a conversation with someone right in front of you, and yet there are all sorts of other conversations going on around you. And so you might start to listen to this conversation over here, even as you're talking to this person, and your eyes start to move over. And what do you do in that moment? You exert yourself to focus on the person that's right in front of you. You pay much closer attention to hear what they're saying. That's the image the author of Hebrews is giving us. Saying if Jesus is really better than the angels, if he's really better than any other savior, then we must seek to pay close attention to him to fix our eyes on him and to listen to him and go back to him over and over and over again. There are all sorts of other voices that clamor for our attention. There are all sorts of other saviors that seek to grab our attention and pull us from him. And yet if Jesus really is better, then we must exert our focus towards him and his words to us. Because if our hearts are not truly satisfied in Jesus' love and approval for us, then we will inevitably look for love and approval outside of him. If our hearts are not resting in his authority and his control over all things, then we will inevitably look outside Jesus to find some other sense of control over this life. If our hearts are not looking to him for comfort and help in the midst of all of life's troubles, then we'll inevitably run all sorts of other places to find comfort and help in whatever troubles we face. And if we're not finding our worth in him, then we'll inevitably look outside Jesus to find our worth. See, the, the command to pay much closer attention to Jesus is actually an invitation for us. It's an invitation saying, come again to Christ and find all you need in him. Come back to him over and over and over again. Find that his love is more satisfying. Find that his peace is stronger and more enduring. Find that his comfort is more assuring than any other comfort. Find that his mercy is always more than our sin and find that his grace is always able to supply what we need. Jesus is better than any other savior. Father, we praise you for sending your son to rescue us 
to save us and to promise us a future with you. God, we, we confess that left to our own, our hearts tend to wander. If Jesus were not the shepherd guarding the gate, we would so easily wander from him and walk away from him and go to all sorts of other saviors. And so God, we praise you for your promises to us in Christ, your promise to hold us fast. And yet God, we pray too that we would be a people who over and over and over again pay attention to Jesus, hear his voice, and are reminded he is better than any other savior we might turn to and that we would find all we need in him and as a result know that he alone is worthy of our trust and worthy of our worship. We pray this in his name. Amen.